Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 2. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, friends, let's uh, begin with uh, prayer as we come now to study God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, on this Palm Sunday, we pray that you would help us to be especially attentive to your Word. We pray, Father, that at this seasonal celebration uh, comes only one time a year, and in the week that follows, uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, that by your Spirit you would help us to be especially attentive to your Word, that you, uh, by your Spirit, would renew us, revitalize us, encourage us, challenge us, uh, strengthen us. We pray this for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, uh, this uh, Palm Sunday, we are beginning a new Easter-themed series on these, the first uh, few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this morning, we're looking at verses 1 and 2. And then on Good Friday, we're just going to consider the profound phrase, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, uh, which comes in verse 3. And then on Easter Sunday morning itself, we will turn to verses 3 to 11. So this new Easter theme series we're beginning this morning. And the reason why I've chosen 1 Corinthians 15 for Easter this year is not just because it's one of the... Uh, greatest summaries of the gospel in the Bible. I mean, that, of course, is important. I remember once someone saying to me, what are you going to preach on at Easter uh, this year? And I said, well, it's not going to be the incarnation. I can tell you that. Easter is about, uh, of course, the resurrection, uh, the great central truth, the gospel. And when we come to Easter, it's to remind ourselves, uh, and important to do so, of this core aspect of the Christian faith. And 1 Corinthians 15 does that for us well. And uh, it is uh, implicable that we immediately then pause this morning, so we begin to get into this passage in this new series, and recognize how significant this reminder is for us today. You see, people these days think that Christianity is about politics primarily, or it's primarily about various cultural agendas. Christianity is centered on Christ and the gospel that He proclaimed. And 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of this. You see, by looking at this sort of summary of the basics, perhaps, of the Christian faith, we stay grounded and orientated around and on these things that we have in common and other matters thereby 
fade into relative insignificance, or at least less significance. And so if a group is arguing about music or a strategy for a new ministry or the color of the carpet, or in some ways the most important thing is to read a passage like 1 Corinthians 15. And you say, well, it says nothing about any of those secondary things. Well, yes, of course. And by saying nothing about such secondary things, it reminds us that they are secondary. It keeps theories about the best way to do Bible study or how to organize a committee or how to lead a mission or all these things. It keeps such theories in, the rightful, in their rightful place. That is less important than these matters of thirst importance. Yet helpful as that is, there are many other parts of the Bible that could do that for us just as well at Easter. You could look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, which describes Christ's death and resurrection. It says, uh, he being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Those famous words from Philippians Uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, or Colossians 1, verse 18. He, that is Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Why? For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. So there are many other summaries, of course, of the of the gospel and the Bible. Why this one, this Easter? Well, because 1 Corinthians 15 comes in a particular context, and it is, its message is particularly helpful for us today. Now, let me explain that context, and then explain how it is particularly helpful for us today. Here's the context. Corinth, you see, was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It was a port city, a harbor city, and like many port cities, it was a zone of trade, culture, and well, often debauchery, of course. And Corinth, located on the isthmus of Greece, had significant trade routes from the north to the south, but especially from the, uh, the east to the west, where it functioned as a land bridge from Asia to Italy, allowing ships to avoid the hazardous journey around the tip of Greece that for ancient ships could uh, lead to shipwreck, as it did, of course, for Paul later. Cargo, and even sometimes actual whole ships, were dragged from one side of the isthmus to the other to avoid this uh, hazardous route around the tip of Greece. And slap bang in the middle of this prosperous trade route, Corinth. Of course, it grew and was wealthy. The time of Paul's writing, though, Corinth was also something of a nouveau riche city. It had fresh energy and rapid growth that had taken place fairly recently. And that was because Corinth had been refounded by Julius Caesar. Uh, it had been destroyed and then refounded by Caesar with a mixture of freedmen, uh, veterans from his wars, given the special privilege to go to Corinth, and artisans, people who had particular trade. Uh, and, uh, and such. And so though Corinth was in Greece, it was also really a Roman city, and it had the customs and indeed the privileges of a free city in the Roman Empire. 
Now, we know from the, its previous incarnation, before its refounding, there's a famous description of the Acro-Corinth. That is the, the pagan temple atop the city hill that uh, looked out over the, the city itself. And it tells us that the shrine prostitutes would make their way by the thousands from the Acro-Corinth down into the city uh, to ply their trade by night. Now, we don't know whether such an extent of license was still taking place in the Corinth of Paul's day, but it's probable that at least to some extent it was, because we have coins from that time of the Isthmian Games, and they suggest that Corinth was still famous for being a good-time city. They had pictures, of course, of the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And those games, the Isthmian Games, took place once every two years, and they were another source of civic pride. In Corinth were these famous games. Money, and of course an excuse for a party. So Corinth was a mixture, we may say, between a sort of wealthy New York, a party city like Las Vegas, but it was also a shrine city, a shrine center of Religious devotion for a pagan goddess, Aphrodite. Now, Paul arrives in this city. He was uh, just at the intellectual center of Athens, but now he comes to this New York slash Las Vegas slash religious center, and he starts to preach the gospel, to evangelize, and he plants a church. And he was remarkably successful. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18 when you get home. And if you do, you'll find that Paul took some fascinating sort of risks, some particular strategic initiatives. First, he determined not to appear as a professional sophist, as was the term today. That is a traveling orator who made his money from fancy words. He refused money for his services, for his preaching, for his public speaking. And instead, he worked as a tent maker, the, uh, the particular expertise that he probably would have uh, gathered in his training as a Pharisee. It was a profitable trade to be a tent maker in Corinth because there, there was a number of people who visited Corinth for its festivals and its sporting events, uh, March Madness, I suppose you might say. And Paul, though, eschewed his rights of being paid. Uh, as he worked as a tent maker in this particular place at this particular time, though elsewhere he was rather bold, even writing to the Corinthian Christians uh, a fundraising uh, appeal for uh, the ministry. But he eschewed it here because he didn't want to appear to be yet another communicator pawning philosophical ideas for money. You see, in Corinth, words were important, fascinating words. Impressive words, words that would gather a crowd and make money. But Paul was not a motivational speaker. He was an apostle, a prophet, a preacher of the gospel. He would not have that confused. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived, uh, Paul, though, now with financial support from them and not therefore going to be confused uh, where his motives and his purpose was in Corinth, he devoted himself full-time purely to the preaching of the gospel. And so then, in his uh, next interesting initiative, he started, as was his custom, with the synagogue, but then when his message was rejected, he moved next door to a non-Jewish worshiper of God who perhaps had a very large house where they could meet, and he based his ministry there. 
And ironically, actually, pretty soon afterwards, the synagogue ruler himself was converted, along with many of the Corinthians. And then, as so often, when there's a work of God, opposition begins to build from those who want to stop what uh, the Spirit is doing. And God graciously then sent a vision to Paul. He spoke to Paul in a vision. He said, uh, keep on preaching, because I, God said, he had many of his people in the city. And so now with that vision of God's sovereignty, even over salvation, keep on preaching the gospel, Paul. I've got many of my people in the city. As Paul would say later, because of the elect... Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half preaching. Now, it's worth taking a moment to note that for Paul, God's sovereignty, even over salvation, never functions to discourage evangelism. Because, because in his thinking, God is sovereign, therefore, he evangelizes. I do all these things, he says, for the sake of the elect. Not because they elect, I do nothing. If God could not save people, in Paul's thinking, what would be the point of preaching that they may be saved? You see, I, I feel similarly. I preach the Word to you this morning because I know God is real. He can save. And what is more, He will save those He is calling, even you. Well, Paul, after this remarkably successful time in Corinth, left on his way to Ephesus. But then he received word from Chloe's household. He tells us this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. That is, it's a message from one of the places where the church met, we presume. And uh, this message uh, made it clear that all was not well at Corinth among the Christians and the church there. Now, what exactly uh, was going wrong. Uh, scholars have debated this for a long time, but uh, whatever theory you adopt, the answer is what was not going wrong. Now, let me say, uh, friends, if you ever feel discouraged <laughs> that a ministry you have begun is less healthy than you wish it was, just read 1 Corinthians. If that's what people do to a message delivered to them by the Apostle Paul, <laughs> We should not allow ourselves, not allow the devil to make us feel downcast when someone misunderstands something we have said. In summary, though, we may say this. The Corinthian Christians, while clearly converted, it was a great work of God, were now beginning to allow the dominant pagan culture in which the church was located to shape their belief structure and therefore what they actually did, their ethical activities in a number of different rather alarming ways. I suppose we might say they're a bit like the proverbial frog in boiling water, gradually being boiled alive by the surrounding culture, not noticing that it was happening. And that's why 1 Corinthians as a whole is an important book for contemporary Christians to read. culture of Corinth was quite like postmodern culture in some ways and an emphasis on sensual experience sexuality status celebrity 
and money. And you see, 1 Corinthians shows us how a church can find a way to be Christian, even in Corinth. And this passage in particular is helpful in this regard. Now look down with me then at at 1 Corinthians 15. And you'll see that Paul indicates right at the start that he's beginning a new topic. Actually, this is one of several. It may be that he's answering questions, perhaps. Anyway, there are different topics that he introduces, and this is a new one uh, that he has to address with the Corinthians. So he says, now I would remind you, brothers uh, and sisters, that uh, that is, now I'm going to talk about this new topic. He's been talking about uh, something else previously, uh, the worship of God. Now he's going to introduce a new topic. This topic is the gospel, (laughs) generally speaking, but in particular, the resurrection. Look at verse 12. You see, he explains why he has to address the topic of uh, the resurrection with uh, these uh, Christians. Here's why. The reason why he needs to address uh, this topic is because some were saying, verse 12, there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul's argument here in this uh, famous chapter about the resurrection is actually then precisely the reverse of many of our arguments for the, the facts and the truth, the fact of the resurrection. He goes about it in precisely the reverse way because their difficulty with, with the resurrection was the opposite of what is our difficulty most normally. See, many of us today find it easy or relatively easy to believe that life in some shape or form will continue after the grave. It's a topic of popular books, what will happen after we die. We hear stories of uh, near-death experiences or people seeing lights when they come back from uh, perhaps death, it, it said. And, and the, whole, the whole topic of life after death is something that we imagine is uh, relatively credible. We can expect that, but we find it hard in our culture to believe that Jesus himself actually rose physically from the dead. People find that hard to believe. Whereas they, you see, seem to think that life finished at the grave, or at least certainly bodily life, physical life, and perhaps all life of any kind. And so look at verse 32. If the dead are not raised, as they were saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. See, that was the attitude. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no life after death, well then, uh, Corinthian Christians, let us seize every experience we can get now, for time is running out. Tomorrow we die. And so what does Paul do? Well, he says, but I want to remind you of the gospel, brothers. Why? Because that gospel has at its heart the resurrection of Jesus bodily from the dead. And if that is true, then how can you say that those who believe in Jesus will not rise from the dead to life? Now, in other words, what Paul is saying is that the reason why Christians 
Corinthianize. That was a verb that was actually used in the ancient world to describe the typical way of life of a Corinthian person, to Corinthianize. The reason why even Christians Corinthianize is because they forget the gospel. In particular, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, actually, then, the word that is translated at the start, uh, remind, has a sort of a deep meaning to it. I-, I really want you to know the gospel. I've been explaining to you the right way to do church in this Corinthian context and talking about all these ethical matters and all the rest, but the bottom line is, and the summary of everything I'm saying is that I, I, I want you to know the gospel. That, that's it. And if you truly know that, if you truly know that Christ is raised, well, then you will live like a Christian and not Corinthianize. <laughs> Now, there's one other aspect in this context that makes uh, all this clear. Paul says, hold fast, this is the end of verse 2, hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now, that issue of in vain is a key thread here, vanity or pointlessness. That's what they were saying to themselves, I think, therefore... Let's seize everything we can in this life while we have a chance. That's the dominant issue that's in the background. It occurs again in verse 17. Look at that verse. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Futile. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people most to be pitied. If, If being a Christian is just about this life, then it's pointless. It's to be pitied. It's futile. It is vain. Paul's saying it's not. And so he concludes uh, verse 58, because of the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing what? That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It connects together this thread. Now, let me illustrate how this context and the message of this passage informs the point for, this, for us this morning like this. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, German pastor Martin Reinkart worked in the town of Eilenburg. And he worked there during the horrors of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Eilenburg was rapidly overcrowded. Refugees came from the surrounding area. See, at the time, the European powers were fighting for political dominance in the days of the Holy Roman Empire. And then, when armies, you see, partly exacted their fees through looting the local inhabitants, the toil on these people was immense. Just imagine. They weren't paid centrally, at least not entirely. They They went around and got the food and the money they needed from those that they occupied. And one year in particular was known as the Great Pestilence. (laughs) Why? Because the diseases that came on top of the bloodshed. Now, in that town where Reinkart was, there were four ministers in Eilenburg. 
one left. Pastor Reinhardt himself officiated at the funerals of the other two. (laughs) He's the only pastor remaining. He conducted services for sometimes, we think, 40 to 50 funerals a day. As many as 4,480 in total during that period. In May of 1637, his wife died. By the end, refugees had to be buried in trenches without formal services at all. It was just too much. Pastor Martin Reinkart is best known today for the words of a prayer that he wrote for his children to say during this time. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices who from our mother's arms. Imagine him enacting that for them. Hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. can you think this way in the midst of this world? Why? <laughs> Why would you not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? Just leave, go somewhere else, find a different place to minister, to work. Why not push yourself forwards to the, 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 the top of the tree, the head of the line? Why not grab all the money you can while you can for as long as you can? Why deny yourself sexually in this world? Because this is not all there is. You see, it's, it's all this that our culture and society is forgetting. And it's this that this Easter I want us to remember. Now, would you then make an especial effort this Easter to invite friends and neighbors to church on Easter Sunday morning? Our world is trying to construct a reason for living based upon self-interest. You know the phrase, what goes around comes around. Or as a if you like it a little more philosophically, as Immanuel Kant put it, the categorical imperative. But as, as much as such ideas have a point and may be applicable in, in various normal standard circumstances, if the dead are not raised, if Christ was not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
but he was. And so he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that For those of us who hold fast to the word of the gospel, it's not in vain. And as we enter now into this this week, this Easter week, Good Friday ahead, Easter Sunday coming up, you would renew and revitalize us with that vision of the resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.